The Legacy of the Monster Diego Tomas Part 1. Ramon stood shirtless in front of the open window, dripping sweat onto the warped pane. It was two in the afternoon, the worst part of the day, when the sun angled in and beat and beat and beat. At ten floors up, there was no relief, no escape from the heat, even if it rained. Rain this time of year was tropical. All it brought was more humidity. He stared at the flooded avenues below. Skeletal awnings, rusty and broken, poked up out of the oily water, catching errant debris flotsam from yet another building that had collapsed in some far-off part of the city. The barkmen fished the narrows, shouting and scrambling as they hauled in another catch. They weren't going to eat any of it. Nobody would. They used it for oil, for their lamps, and their bombs. Stupid barkmen. They stank like fish. They fucked like dogs. They were animals. Be glad we live up here, Ramon, his father, Diego Tomas, used to say. The air is fresh, and we're clean. Not like down there with those fucking wetbacks. It made perfect sense to Ramon when he was a kid. Barkmen hauled the fish, so they reeked and were inferior. Roofers tended the garden, so they smelled like earth and were better. He always struggled to classify the generators. They didn't smell like anything, yet Diego Tomas called them stupid for choosing to live in the middle of the building. It created dissent, he said. They were always fighting the barkmen or the roofers, striving for position, respect. Now that they could no longer keep the electricity running, Ramon knew that they weren't just stupid. They were stupid and desperate. He experienced that desperation firsthand when the bastards broke through the fifth floor barrier and tried to take over the building. He rested his elbows on the sill, wincing at the pain from the pellets in his back, pellets his own son, Michal, shot at him. While he was downstairs defending his people fighting off the idiot generators, Michal did their job for them, took over the roof, made his own barricade. Ramon tried to talk some sense into the boy, but after the battle, his anger was difficult to contain. He couldn't get the image of his son's eyes out of his mind, how they went dead and blank as he raised the shotgun. How much longer? Ramon asked. His wife, Zoriana, said, Almost ready. Ramon turned back into the dark apartment. The wood floors were worn and warped. A few turquoise drapes hung over the windows. Zoriana, her long black hair draped over her shoulders, came toward him with a knife and a bowl bandages, and honey. He pulled up a chair and sat in it backwards so he could look out the window while she worked on him. You have to go down and talk to her, she said. I don't want to go down and talk to her. I want to go up and beat some sense into my son. Well, that sounds productive. Yes, productive for me. Zoriana pushed the tip of the blade into one of the puncture wounds, withdrew a metal pellet, and dropped it into the bowl with a plink. Didn't you try that already? Why am I picking these things out of your back? It was too fast for him to hit me in the face, that's why. Psh, plink. I wouldn't even have to go through the barricade, he said. I could grapple up the side. It's only three floors. No, Ramon. It's the only way. Not if you talk to her. Alone you're weak, but together. Zoriana, I just killed four of her people. We fought, she and I. One-on-one, I... Her arm. 
You have to talk to her, Ramon. She's the only one who can help. You know Michelle's already done it. Someone in the distance ziplined between two buildings, a black silhouette against the red sun. A stray bee buzzed by, followed by a message flying down on a string from the roof to the fifth floor. Michelle really was talking to the generators, talking to her, planning a coup. Ramon sucked his teeth and shook his head. I want to strangle him. Zoriana jabbed him a little too hard with the knife. Aye, Zori! His foot rubbed against something, and he looked down to see what it was. A shoe. A little white shoe with a yellow flower on the heel. It belonged to Mia, his daughter. How is Mia? he asked. Fine. She's in her room. I want to check on her. Don't. She's finally asleep. She was terrified when you left. Ramon let his wife work. After a while, he said, How long has he been building that barricade? Since you went down to fight her. And you let him? Another jab. Another pellet. He took your gun, Ramon. What was I supposed to do? Why did you leave it up here anyway? I left it for you, for him, just in case. She stopped, and he wondered if she was mad or thinking. He knew better than to force it. After a few minutes, he heard her unscrew the lid to the jar. You better be taking good care of my bees. He's your son. You trained him. Ramon put his chin on the sill and closed his eyes. Lately, when the sky finally did open up, he and the others had to haul in the big flats of corn and peppers, the grapevines and melons. First it was enough to store them in the rooms on the 12th floor, but now the roof leaked, had even crumbled in places, and he wondered how long it would be before it vanished entirely, just rotted away. How long would their building last? How long before it listed and fell and turned into so much debris floating in the narrows? What were they going to do? This is madness. He's just mimicking you, Ramon. How many times did you tell him the story of you and Diego Tomas? I'm not Diego Tomas. Diego Tomas was a monster. And what are you? What did you just do? What was I supposed to do? They broke through the barrier. Your son sees it differently. He's in love. With some pale mid-level slut, how did they even meet? They climbed the elevator shaft. The old trash chutes. Ramon knew this. He did the same when he was a child. It's dangerous. Zoriana turned his head and took his face in her hands and gave him a sweet kiss. It's how we met, remember? I remember. But you were one of us. In love, what does it matter? I'm his father. He should listen to me. Zoriana stood up and started to gather her things. Go see her. Go talk to your sister. Ramon emptied the bowl into his hand before giving it back to her. The metal painted little dots on his skin. He looked out the window. The sun pounded down, fat and red. The barkmen continued their haul. Ramon watched them. He shook the pellets in his fist. City streets are crumbling Beneath the flood day And the sun will spark the fire And the fire will fan the flames And the flames are rising up Up inside me every day And if you know what is best What is best for everything Every man, woman, and child You will all run for Part 2 Ramon stood in the stairwell with his back to the wall. Around the corner sat the fifth-floor barrier. He could smell the blood, the death. Marishka's people murmured to each other as they cleaned it off the tiles. He had to plan this carefully, had to give Gazzini enough time to gather his men in oil, set up the catapults. If he spun around the corner too fast, 
Mariska's people would startle and jump on him. If he waited too long, she would see what the Barkmen were up to and fight back. Either way, Gazzini's attack would fail, and his wife and daughter would die. Lamps smoked and sputtered in the stairwell, casting a brown light over everything. Ramon winced. Why was she wasting her oil here? Better to let the stains remain, a reminder for her people, something she could use when she needed them to fight again. He took a deep breath, counted back from five, four, three, two. I am Ramon Cruz. I mean no harm. I want to talk to my sister. He waited a beat, then turned the corner, hands raised. The soldiers had already drawn their long knives and crouched side by side, ready for a fight. The woman jumped up and grabbed a spinner leaning up against the wall. She hunched down behind the soldiers, who closed ranks to protect her. Ramon eyed the spinner. Four sharp blades bolted to the end of a long pole. The woman turned it slowly, deliberately, to show him she knew how to use it. He knew what she was thinking. One jab to keep him back, one to weaken him. If he somehow got under it, if he grabbed it, the men would slice him to bits. And as he stumbled back, the spinner would find his eyes, his throat. Excellent for one-on-one fights. Useless everywhere else. He kept a wise distance. I'm here to talk to Marijke, he said. I'm here to offer a truce, an alliance. The woman snorted. Bullshit. I've seen what your offers look like. Look around. You don't understand. I understand fine, cabron. You came unarmed? As a unit, they advanced two steps. That was stupid. She spun the blades faster, trying to intimidate him. They weren't close enough yet to hit him, and he could always run, but that wasn't an option. He had to finish this. Had to finish it tonight. So he stood. Stood with raised hands and a raised chin as the spinner cut the air in front of him. The trio inched forward as if he were a wild animal, expecting him to charge at any moment. He closed his eyes, gathered his strength. One more inch. One more inch. Z! No! Ramon's eyes flew open. The blades tickled his shirt, stopping a centimeter over his heart. Marijke, his sister, was standing in front of the barrier. She was battered and bruised and bloody, her right arm held in the sling against her chest, her left eye filled with blood. Riri, Ramon said, smiling. Don't call me that. It's what I've always called you. My name is Marijke. Ramon chuckled. She seethed. What do you want, Cabron? Again with the Cabron, you people need to read a dictionary. I don't have time for this. She turned around as if to crawl back through the tunnel, but Ramon said, Marijke, wait. Why? I want to talk. Talk? Talk about what? The people you murdered? Ramon swallowed his protest, saying instead, No. There's something else, something new, a a new threat. A hint of a smile pulled on his sister's upper lip. She squashed it. A threat? So soon? Yes. She started to say something, something harsh and bitter, but then she stopped. She saw something. Something she hadn't seen in a long time, not since they were young. Not the anger and hardness that marked their adult life together, but heartache and desperation, swaddled in sadness. He needed her. It was strange to feel sorry for a man as brutal and cruel as him. A man who had slaughtered her people, most certainly doomed her to gangrene and amputation. She strived to hate him, to feel contempt. She wanted to harden, to spit in his face, to stomp on his false humility, but couldn't. There was no point. She couldn't back it up with anything anyway, so she swallowed the acid and forced a smile. Okay, 
We'll talk, Ramon. She let out a small breath, not a back at the barrier, but in there, where you can see what you've done. Ramon watched the blood blossom on his sister's sling as they walked down the hall. They walked in a line, first Marijka, then him, then Z, taking up the rear, staring daggers into his back. There were dark stains in the walls, spatters, and thick smells, too, the typical rotten mold that he was used to. But under that, something rank, death or dying or something worse, something in between. He stepped in something soft and squishy and sucked in his breath. Marijka enjoyed every step. Don't like it down here, do you, big brother? No. She gestured with her good arm. But this is all yours. You created this. You should take pride in your accomplishments. Isn't that what Diego Tomas taught us? Diego Tomas was a monster. I'm no Diego Tomas. Marijka stopped in the open door of an apartment where a woman and three children wept over the body of a man with a hole in his chest. You're not? Ramon bit back his response. He wanted to remind his sister that it was her people who broke the truce, her people who pushed up to the seventh floor, but she'd just throw it in his face, show him more filth, more children weeping over fathers, brothers, as if he had anything to do with their bad choices. Did she think he was any better off? He stopped himself from letting the dark thoughts take over. He didn't have enough time. He had to get her back to her apartment. They needed to be in there together. Gazzini was counting on it. Fine, Marijka, he said. Fine, you win. This is all terrible. Can we just get moving? She led him to the end of the hall, to her apartment, and opened the door. Please, brother, come inside. Let's talk. It was no better lit than the hallway, and no better smelling, too. She left the windows open and uncovered, letting in the pale light of the moon and the warm yellow of the Barkman's fires. Z went to the kitchen, where she lit a lamp. Beneath the dirty face and torn clothes, she was actually quite beautiful. Wide-set eyes and full lips. She caught him looking and glared as he took a seat at a battered old card table. The fake leather top frayed at the edges, and a tear ran down the length of one side. Marijka sighed and adjusted her sling as she sat down. I'd offer you something to eat, but we don't have any food. Ramon tried to ignore the barb. We have water. Z, get my brother a glass. Z ignored the order. Fuck him. Ramon pushed back from the table. Little girl, you don't want to take me on. No spinner, no guards. He stood to his full height. Come on. She smiled and took a step forward, but Marijka pounded on the table. God damn it, Z! The girl snapped out of her spell, and her eyes locked onto Marijka's. A glass of water for my brother. I don't know where Gabriella has some. Z hesitated. Now! She nodded and turned and stalked out of the apartment. Ramon sat down, laughing. <laughs> really, Marijka, where do you get these things? Z's parents came all the way up here from the Gulf. The Gulf? Why didn't they just head for Boulder? Boulder's not letting any more people in. Since when? Marijka shrugged. They posted guards, put up a fence. Z's parents were shot dead trying to climb it. She made it all the way here by herself. You wouldn't believe what she had to do. Ramon pondered. Well, she's pretty. Don't let it fool you. Oh, I wouldn't dare. Z returned with a pitcher of water and two cloudy glasses. She plunked them down on the table and retreated to the kitchen to lean on the edge of the counter and cross her arms. Neither Ramon nor Marijka reached for the glasses. So, Ramon, she said, talk. Ramon had planned out what he would say as he stood on Gazzini's balcony, how he would make a long speech about their father, create some common ground, how he would plead for peace, for forgiveness, anything to buy more time. 
It would be hard playing that part, especially with that girl glaring at him. Before he could start, his sister said, Did your wife send you down here? Did she make you come? Something must have shown in Ramon's face because Marijka laughed. <laughs> the great Ramon Cruz, son of the monster Diego Tomas, tamed by a scold of a wife. Don't talk about Zori that way. She must be quite a fuck, Ramon. Marijka, listen to me. Something's happened with Michal. Oh, really? She gestured for Z, who sat down on her lap. She stroked her hair with her good hand. Yes, Ramon said. It's serious. Mm-hmm. Marijka pulled Z's face down toward her and planted a full kiss on her lips. Ramon watched for a moment, then, disgusted by the display, slouched in his seat, let his eyes wander over the torn surface of the table. They broke the kiss after a moment, and Marijka said, I know all about my nephew, brother. She reached for her glass, and Z got off her lap and filled it with water from the pitcher. Then she filled Ramon's glass. Ramon put his hand on it, but didn't pick it up. He wanted to. His mouth was dry, and after the day he'd had, the fight, the meeting with Cazzini, he desperately wanted something nice. Just a small drink. Something to cool his throat. But he had to wait. He had to wait for his sister to drink first. Z drifted over to the window. Did you contact him? He contacted me, Ramon. Z leaned on the sill. Marichka, she said. The barkmen are... Ramon cut her off. What did he want? He wanted a truce. To put a stop to the violence. Said he was sick of it, sick of everybody dying. He promised to give me the sixth and seventh floor if I agreed. Michal said this. Z, give him the note. The girl tried to explain again, saying, But Marichka, they're moving the oil. Z, go get the note. Z pulled herself away from the window and went to the kitchen. She picked a scrap of paper off the counter and slapped it down on the table in front of Ramon. He glanced at it. It was written in Michal's handwriting. Those floors were not his to give. Marijka sighed. That's what I told him. The roof is mine. Just as I thought. Still, he is a Cruz. He is your son, your favorite, just like you were father's. Marijka, with that again, she ignored him. I took him at his word. I told him if he could deliver me what he promised, no more fighting. Ramon thought of Gazzini's son, the butcher's block. That's not what he was doing, Marijka. Of course it wasn't. So I took out some insurance. She motioned to Z, who produced a ripped plastic bag and put it on the table between them. What's this? Ramon asked. Take a look, brother. A cry came up from the barkman outside. Fishing? Marijka said. This late? That's what I was trying to tell you, Z said. They're out there, loading up their boats. Who is? The barkman. Yes, but who? The fishermen? The gutters? All of them. What? Marijka jolted to her feet, wincing at the pain in her shoulder, and she and Z ran to the windows. Ramon knew what was coming. He'd given Gazzini the time he needed. But the bag, it bothered him. What was the sister up to? He pulled it to him and let it sit there, unopened. Just looked at it. A thumb, maybe? An ear? The barkman let up another cry, deep and guttural. The room lit up with a great red light. Before he died, before the world erupted in flame, he had to see what it was. He opened the bag carefully, as if it held a bomb, peered inside. Then he gasped and leapt to his feet, knocking the metal chair to the floor. What have you done? Marijka turned from the window. I should ask you the same thing. Marijka! What did you do? Nothing you wouldn't do, brother. The building shook with the first explosion. Something crashed through the window, striking Z and sending her sprawling to the hardwood. 
She grabbed her neck, gasping, clawing at the shard of glass sticking out of it. A second explosion rocked the building, knocking the table and chairs over. The bag fell to the floor, spilling its contents at Ramon's feet. People in the hall cried out, They're coming! They're coming! Ramon ignored everything. The crashing windows, the roaring fire, the screams, the battle cries. The floor buckled beneath him, and he didn't care. The thing in the bag wasn't a thumb. It wasn't an ear. It wasn't a head or an organ or any other body part. It was a shoe. A little shoe. White with a plastic yellow flower on the heel. And it was covered in blood. Part 3 Michal and Natalia zipped down the lines, two black dots against the red sky. The alarm was raised, and Ramon's guards fired off a few half-hearted pot shots, but the pair expertly threaded the old broken windows in the building opposite and landed unscathed. They sprinted down the 11th floor hall to the first opening, a hole blasted into the bricks, clipped to the new lines, and sped down another story. In this way, they reached the third floor of the other side of the building, out of sight and out of range of his father's snipers. Night fell. They squatted in the busted-up kitchen, the moonlight filtering through the shattered windows, illuminating the broken pipes and shredded wiring. Natalia bit into a red pepper, and Michal sucked his teeth. What? she asked. The peppers. What about them? They're smaller and smaller every year. She offered it to him, and when he refused, she shrugged and took another bite. Isn't that why we're here? to level things out? Yep. She watched him pull something out of his pocket and shake it in his hand. The ring. That stupid silver ring. He liked to play with it when he was thinking, and it drove her crazy. When she said anything, he got ugly. It belonged to his father, Ramon Tomas, the pillar of his life and the source of all his anger. Natalia saw the old man once when she was little, carving a path through the soldiers in the hallway as she cowered against the door jamb. He slashed and chopped. Blood sprayed the walls. Then their eyes met. It was only for a moment, but the terror lasted long after her mother snatched her up and fled back into their apartment. From that point on, Ramon Tomas was the boogeyman, the murderer hiding around the corner, the thing in her dreams. No wonder Michal barely ever laughed. He was raised by a monster. How many kegs of oil did you say we could get away with? She said. Enough. You sure you can do it? He fixed her with an icy stare. You provide the distraction. I'll kill that stinking Barkman chief. She finished the pepper, seeds and all, and wiped the knife off on her pants. Then she grabbed him by the back of the head and planted a kiss on his mouth. I've got this, she said. It was so quiet at night that Abrafo could hear the water lapping against the crumbling bricks of the old buildings. He liked the sound. It was the only thing that soothed him. Everything else about his life, the endless heat, the crowded apartments, drove him crazy. He was the son of Gazzini, chief of the Barkman, and it shamed him to feel that way. He'd heard of dry land to the west, places where people didn't live like he did, squeezing the life out of every last thing until it finally disintegrated or broke and crumbled back into the narrows. He wanted out, 
and the monster's son, Michal, was going to help him. They were going to burn it all down. He skimmed along the surface on his skiff, using his long pole to guide it through the water. Every now and then, something bumped him from beneath, testing the platform. Every now and then he saw eyes glitter in the moonlight. One of the other night patrolmen, an older boy he didn't know, whistled and pulled his skiff out of the shadows next to his. Stupid! Didn't you see it? See what? <laughs> Some chief you'll make. Abrafo scanned the dark lane before him, but still couldn't see anything. There it is again, the other boy said. Where? There! Open your eyes! They paused. But all Abrafo could hear was the gentle lapping of the water. Five seconds passed. Thirty. A minute. Shh! The other boy hissed. Abrafo ignored the temptation to knock him off his skiff. Then, out of the corner of his eye, he saw movement. A shadow flitting in past one of the broken windows. The other boy leaned forward to stare at the water, stupidly putting him in a position where he could easily lose his balance. It's not in the water, Abrafo said. It's up there. Shh! A shadow plunged into the water from above, rocking their skiffs, and the other boy tumbled overboard with a shout. Abrafo felt his foot yanked from beneath him, and down he went. When he surfaced, the attacker had already climbed into his skiff and was using his pole to steer it away. Get it! The other boy yelled. Then he was jerked into the water. Oh, God, Abrafo thought. He lunged away, trying to put as much distance between himself and the monster under the water. The boy resurfaced again. Help! He gasped and grabbed Abrafo's forearm. Abrafo yanked it out of his grasp, and then the boy was dragged under again and didn't come back up. He turned and swam for his life, trying to focus on his body, scoop the hands, roll the shoulders. His arms were pistons, his legs on springs, and before he knew it, he ran into the side of a half-submerged awning and scrambled up. His attacker was only a few feet in front of him, struggling to steer the skiff. He leapt for it, landing aft, gained his footing, and scooted forward. One arm thrust around the neck, one around the chest, and... Wait. You gonna feel me up all night? Natalia asked. Abrafo released her. Michal said you were supposed to come quiet. Not like this. He grabbed the pole out of her hands. You could have gotten me killed. You were supposed to be alone. Had to make it look real, didn't I? Abrafo laid the pole across the skiff, took his machete out of the loop on his belt, flipped it so that he was holding it by the blade, a smooth, practiced movement. Natalia tried to back up, but she was already standing at the prow. What are you doing? I have to make it look real, don't I? Natalia stumbled through a second-floor hallway, her clothes soaked, her head whirling. Her eye had swollen closed, and black spots swam in the other, so all she could see were her feet slapping on the soaked carpet and the occasional face of a child staring out from an open doorway. Abrafo kept a tight grip on her wrists as more and more people filed in behind, whispering and murmuring the whole time. Who is this? someone asked. What does she do? Mid-level bitch tried to kill me and break into the building, Abrafo said. Are they attacking? Who knows? I'm taking her to my father. A wise boy. Gazzini will know what to do. Gazzini will protect us. Natalia was a little shocked. They weren't as filthy as everyone in her building said they were. In fact, they looked fresh and clean, and they wore colorful clothes decorated with shells and bits of metal. Abrafo pushed her up an open stairwell, leaving the group behind. Glass lamps had been screwed into the crumbling walls. Oil burned in them, providing dim light. Natalia struggled to climb, but waited until they turned the first corner before she leaned up against the wall and sank to the floor. Abrafo gave her a bladder filled with water and she drank from it, dribbling some down her chin. She handed it back, shifted her feet, and tried to stand, but her legs shook and she plopped back down again. 
Abrafo held out his hand. She slapped it away. Raised voices from below, shocked cries. Abrafo craned his neck over the rail to see what was going on. What is it? Natalia asked. I don't know. Then he saw him, the boy from outside, the one he thought was dead. He was standing at the bottom of the stairs, all the people from the hall gathered behind him. His chest and arms were covered in blood, and his face looked like something had taken a chunk out of it. His one good eye fixed on Abrafo. Abrafo turned and grabbed Natalia's arm. We have to go. She saw the expression on his face and didn't resist. They ran, Abrafo in front, yanking her up the stairs. Below them, she heard more astonished cries. Voices raised in argument. Impossible! The chief's son? Yes! Yes! Natalia did her best to keep up, but Abrafo took two steps at a time, and her head hurt so bad that she felt like she was going to pass out. They made it up one flight, then another, turning corners as fast as they could, the boy widening the distance with each step. She slowed down to pull out her machete. Hurry, he called. I'm trying! The mob below grew louder, angrier. Dozens of feet pounded up the stairs. Abrafo! Traitor! Abrafo sprinted up and away, and Natalia lurched and struggled, conscious only of the burning in her lungs, the ache in her head. One step at a time, one step at a time. She tripped and sprawled forward, picked herself up, and pushed on. The mob behind her grew closer. Their cries echoed in the stairwell, blocked out even the sound of her own breathing until it filled her head. How many more flights? Someone grabbed her foot and she slashed back with her machete. She heard the familiar of the Barkman blowguns, felt the darts strike her back, her legs. One more flight, and then she'd have to turn around, have to face them. The thought of it gave her strength, made her strong again. She scaled one set, then another, moving faster and faster, yanking on the rails, putting more steps between her and the mob. The voices fell farther behind, and then suddenly she reached the top. Abrafo was arguing with a muscular man guarding the door of his father's floor. Natalia stumbled forward, and the guard put his hand on the knife in his belt. Who is this, Abrafo? What do you want? I caught her trying to break in. So? Take her to the basement and throw her in the pit. Natalia fell against the wall next to the guard, her machete clattering on the floor. She pulled a dart out of her leg and tossed it aside. He recoiled. What do you think will happen if we kill her, Abrafo said. He pointed down the well. Listen to them. They've gone mad. They want blood. I don't think, the guard began, but Natalia interrupted him. He's not going to listen, she said. In one swift movement, she scooped up her weapon and buried it in his stomach. Gazzini's floor was dark and squalid. He'd opened up the entire thing, tore down all the walls, pulled all of the pipes, yanked all of the wire, every fixture, knob, scrap. Everything had been dismantled and put to better use. Even more incredible was the light. Oil lamps burned in great pots in each of the four corners, sending black smoke into metal ducts that carried it out into the night. Smaller lamps lined the floors, hung from the ceiling, burning more oil in a minute than Natalia had ever seen in her entire life. A chopping sound echoed in the dark. They followed it around the corner of a support beam, careful to avoid tripping on the lamps that lit the way. There he stood, Gazzini, Abrafo's father, a hulking figure bending over a chopping table covered in fish parts and blood. He'd surrounded himself with lamps, so many that Natalia could see every muscle in his back ripple as he worked in the meat in front of him. The butcher's knife thunked into the wood. He made his cut, then pushed the meat aside. Natalia couldn't see what he was working on, but judging by his grunts and effort, it was big. A shark, maybe? A mutation? Whatever it was, she didn't want to be there anymore. If Gazzini was alive, it was a bad sign. They stopped a few feet away. The butcher's knife thunked one more time into the block, and Gazzini leaned on the table with both hands. He sighed. 
<sighs> it was a beautiful night, huh, Brafo? Abrafo frowned, wondering how to respond. He started to say something, but a dozen stout fists slammed the door behind him. The mob cried for blood. Gazzini ignored them. You were born on a night like this. Your mother on a cot in the corner? He grabbed the handle of the butcher's knife and yanked it out of the block, dragging it across the wood. Nature punishes you for success. Once you think you've made it, once you think you have everything you want, she takes it away. Not all at once, but little pieces. He grunted and chopped into the meat again. Abrafo said, Father. The door behind them cracked. More fists pounded. Do you know what your mother told me before she died? She said, Take care of him. Like I had a choice. Natalia swayed on her feet. What's in the block? Gazzini reached out behind him with a bloody knife. Tell the mid-level bitch as she opens her mouth again. I'll cut it off. Abrafo looked at her, shook his head. I took care of you, Abrafo, Gazzini said. That's what fathers do. That's what men do. They take care of their sons. Is that what you call it? I'm a prisoner here. Abrafo, you're going to be chief one day. Oh, yes, the chief. Abrafo spread his arms wide. Of all this, of this magnificent kingdom, son. I'm not your son, I'm your slave. I don't want any of this. There it is. The fire, the anger. When I was young like you, I had it too. So much piss and vinegar, I leapt and ran. I climbed these walls, wrestled net after net out of the water, fought off that stinking Diego Tomas and his fucking zip liners. But now, now I'm paying for it. My body hurts, Abrafo. I can barely walk up a flight of stairs. A fist punched through the top part of the door. Abrafo! Traitor! Natalia took three steps forward, raising her machete over her head. Abrafo could only watch, frozen. Gazzini said, The pain keeps me up at night, which was why I was awake when your friend tried to kill me. Natalia stopped, and finally the old man turned around, revealing the mangled form on the block. She dropped her weapon and fell to her knees with a moan. Gazzini reached back and picked something out of the ruck, held it up for her to see. It sparkled in the light. I think he might have wanted you to have this, he said, and flipped it to her. It pinged as it turned, end over end, landing beside her on the floor, bouncing once, twice, coming to a rest just as the mob broke down the door and flooded the room. Gazzini stepped out onto the balcony, carefully closing the door on a high-pitched squeal. Pots of oil burned on the rails, hung from the platform above. He withdrew a cigar from his pocket and used one of the pots to puff it to life. The cherry glowed red in the dark. Another scream erupted from inside, knifing through the angry shouts of the mob. Behind him, a voice said, Is that her? Gazzini chuckled. He turned around. Ramon stood with his back to the wall, still in the shadows. I asked you a question. Gazzini took a languorous draw on his cigar, filling his cheeks. It was a rare gift, given to him on one of his yearly trading convoys to the mountains. He savored it, closed his eyes, blew a great gray cloud out into the night. I got rid of your problem for you. Ramon remained in the shadows, his face unseeable, unreadable, but his reply was terse, as if he spoke through clenched teeth. Thank you. We old men. We have to stick together, you know. I know. Ramon took a step out of the shadows, and Gazzini took a step back and put his hand on the doorknob. 
All I have to do is open this door. Ramon's eyes didn't move. Relax, Barkman. I'll relax when you've taken care of my problem for me. I told you I would. Gazzini took another puff on his cigar. And your wife? Your daughter? They're safe on the 11th floor. It'll only be me and my sister. Are you sure you can even talk to her? Her men will hack you to pieces. She'll let me through. The barkman was unimpressed. He gestured at the door. If she's anything like you, I'd bring some kind of weapon. Ramon stepped up to the railing and clipped onto a zip line. He turned his head, a sneer forming on his lips. Give me an hour. Okay, Ramon. Ramon looked like he was about to say something, thought better, and jumped off the railing and into the night. I'd love to attend the Tomas family reunion, Gazzini called after him. What a party that would be, huh? Hey, hey, thank you for tuning into the Mad Tales podcast. I hope you enjoyed this week's chapter. If you cannot wait until next week to finish the story, you can always buy it in ebook and paperback form from Amazon.com, or you can buy it directly from me, both in ebook and in paperback, a signed paperback nonetheless, uh, from my website, www.jamesnoll.net. That's www.jamesnoll.net. And if you would love to support me on Patreon, I would love you to support me on Patreon. I'm offering all kinds of cool extras, including access to bonus material, uh, the ebooks released one week at a time, the chapter at a time, uh, customized short stories. And if I can build enough of a following, I want to film a live action version of Make the Hive Great Again, one of my favorite chapters from The Hive. It's uh, at the end of the first season. It's the very last chapter of the, of the first season. That would be an awesome thing to do. So, if you want to visit my Patreon page, it's www.patreon.com slash madtails. That would be fantastic, and I will see you guys next week.